Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick and this is episode number 106 of the Mandolins of Beer podcast brought to you in part by my favorite website, the Mandolin Cafe. Right on the front page there, uh, the last couple days, they've had a thing that Sharon Gilchrist is putting out called Mandolins, Cars, and Coffee. This one is with Joe K. Walsh, and it looks awesome, and it's coming out today. I'm really looking forward to checking that out. So head over to Mandolin Cafe and click on the uh, picture that says Mandolins, Cars, and Coffee, and it'll take you to all the details. Congrats to Sharon. I'm really excited for this series to check out. My guest this week is Sarah Jarose. Uh, her new album, Blue Heron Sweet, is just absolutely beautiful. You should definitely check it out. Uh, go out there and purchase it today. You can stream it as well on all the streaming things. And she's also out on tour. So if you get a chance and she's in your area, go on out and check it out. She's actually coming to Greenville in a few days. And I'm hoping to head north and check that out myself. It sounds great. Hey, are you a music teacher and a performing musician? Check this out. With a pandemic closing performance venues, a lot of musicians are really hurting financially. Being a musical artist doesn't mean you can't have financial security even during a pandemic. You deserve a steady income stream so that you can quit worrying about money and focus on your art. The folks at Lesson Business Blueprint believe that you should be paid well for your talents, and that's why they created the Lesson Business Blueprint online course. Teaching music lessons online is the perfect way for you to make the money you need to pay your bills and promote your music. And this course will teach you everything you need to start and run your online music lesson business. When you sign up for the course, you'll learn how to attract quality students, create demand, and make money teaching online music lessons. Your teacher, Nate Lee, is a veteran of the online music lesson business and is regarded as one of the most successful teachers and business owners on the scene. In the Lesson Business Blueprint online course, Nate shares secrets that will make your online teaching business successful and lucrative. Sign up today at LessonBusiness.com and use the code MANDO100 to get $100 off your purchase. That's a great deal. So check that out. LessonBusiness.com Hey, have you checked out Peghead Nation yet? They have streaming video courses for mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass, where you can learn bluegrass, old-time, and styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in Roots Music. Who are those instructors, you ask? How about Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Feibish, and Chad Manning? That's who. Courses include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play, and... Join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now and get your first month for free. Just go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code MANDOLINBEER, all one word, at checkout. Good stuff, y'all. Northfield Mandolins. Let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com. Download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. And check out their Instagram for some of the greatest mandolin pictures you're going to see on the interwebs. And Pava Mandolins, dedicated to building for the impassioned player. They're located in Austin, Texas. All right, folks, let's get into this episode with Sarah Jarose. Oh, hey, by the way, if you're going to be at IBMA, booth 122, myself and Keith from the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast will be there. I'll have some swag and all sorts of stuff. So come over and say hello if you're going to be there. I'm looking forward to it. Cheers, everybody.
All right, well, now it's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast four-time Grammy winner, Sarah Jarose. Sarah, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much for doing this. This is uh, this is exciting. I've been a fan uh, for years. Your albums are always so good. I actually saw you at Telluride in, what was it, maybe 2016, and your act was my favorite that whole weekend. It, oh, it geez, was I think it was, it was a trio, maybe, and it just it was just killer. Um, just the instrumentation, the the harmonies, the tunes. It it made for a a great set, and it was definitely my highlight. So that was oh, awesome. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And you're getting speaking of playing gigs, you're you're getting ready to go out on tour right around the corner here. Right around the corner. Yeah, I'm um, leaving. I guess by the time this podcast comes out, I will be on the road. Um, yeah, this is kind of my first tour tour um, since the pandemic started. I've, I've done a handful of shows, sort of one-offs and festivals kind of scattered throughout the summer. But this um, this will be my first time like really getting to hit the road for a couple weeks. And um, I'm excited to to settle into a groove and, you know, hopefully it can all go smoothly and safely for everyone. So we're all, we're all just kind of trying our best to navigate it at the moment. <laughs> yeah. I think that's all you can do. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? You try your, yeah. try your best and, and your, um, your, your newest album that just came out, Blue Heron Sweet is phenomenal. listen to it yet it is just uh i don't even really know how i mean it's just haunting and i, I know that word just seems overused sometimes but i really don't know any other way to it's just it's amazing it's just a, such a you. great vibe you're welcome um and i want to talk a little bit about that and because it's kind of an interesting story be, behind how the album came to be made yeah totally um it's it's sort of been a long time coming in a way to, to finally get to release it this year. I, it came about, um, there's a great festival up in Massachusetts called Fresh Grass, which I've played many times. And um, the, the folks that run that festival are just so great. And they started a foundation called the Fresh Grass Foundation. And um, I think back in 2016, they started uh commissioning artists who were playing at the festival to write an original piece of music to premiere during their set at the festival. And um, Bill Frizzell was the first person who they asked. And then I was the second person and it was a total surprise. I, I mean, because it was so new, I hadn't even heard about it really when, when Bill Frizzell did it. So um, yeah, it sort of came, I guess. So by the time they asked me, it was like May of 2017 and I was going to be performing at the festival that fall. And the only guideline musically that they gave me was that it needed to be 30 to 45 minutes of music, which <laughs> is a lot, you know, that's like an album. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, I was fortunate in, in the timing of it. I think if I had been in the middle of working on, a record 
it might've been too much of an undertaking. Um, but it, it came at, at a perfect time. I was kind of finishing up my touring and sort of album cycle behind undercurrent, which was my fourth album. And, um, and I just was sort of in the creative headspace to like tackle this, this musical challenge that they presented me. And, um, and I spent sort of that whole, that summer, mostly August um, of 2017, writing this piece of music. And I, I decided to make it a song cycle, um, basically meant to be listened to from start to finish as a, as a complete story, as a complete, you know, musical thought. And, um, and then, yeah, premiered it at the Freshgrass Festival in, in 2017 and then recorded it the next year. And now it finally came out <laughs> this year. <laughs> And the um and the the subject matter is is pretty near to your heart. Mm-hmm. Um and 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 it, it was for your mother who was battling breast cancer. Yeah, yeah. She um that was also sort of it just felt she had been diagnosed with breast cancer the December prior to when they asked me to do this, and so when that that was like a very intense emotional time she was sort of in the the height of her chemotherapy and radiation treatments and it was really tough for me to kind of be so far away from her and be traveling and not be with her through that whole thing but um writing this music and sort of deciding to make it about the blue heron, which has sort of symbolized like a, a good omen, kind of been like a good omen symbol for my family since I was a little kid, um, was like a really healing uh, thing for me during that time. And sort so, sort of pouring those hopeful kind of thoughts into that <laughs> emotion that was really intense. Um, I think I poured all of that into this into this music. And it's been Honestly, it's felt like um, kind of meant to be that it didn't come out until this year because um, considering how tough the last year has been, I think that a lot of, at least a lot of fans writing to me saying, you know, whether it's the difficulties they've been through this last year or going through a similar thing with a family member who who was battling breast cancer, it's been so amazing to me how people have responded to this um, and it seems like people were really hungry for, well, I guess like, you know, nowadays everything, everybody's attention spans are so short and (laughs) everything is sort of delivered in this tiny, you know, one minute Instagram uh, post package. And so I wasn't sure if putting out something that's really, you know, it's about 32 minutes long and it's meant to be listened to as a whole. I wasn't sure if that would really connect with people. And so it's been so, Amazing. It feels like people are really hungry for something like that to really sit down and, and experience something. Yeah. And it is an experience. I mean, from the minute that just I literally just from the opening track, I was just like, whoa, I'm not I'm not going to be looking at my phone. I'm going to be looking <laughs> at my iPad because, again, you know, that's how it's everything's right there on your phone. So it's like, oh, I'll listen to some music, totally. and, you know. 20 minutes later, I forgot I was listening to anything with your album, though. I was just like just captured by it. And your mother is in remission. Is that she is? Yeah. yeah. Thankfully, she's been in remission for a few years now. So thankful, oh, good. thankful well, for that. Glad to hear it. That's awesome. Um, so it, here, I, be, before we dig too much, I'd like to find out how you started playing mandolin. Yeah, well, um, it, it goes, I guess I was about nine 
almost 10 years old when I started playing mandolin. Um, I grew up in Texas and I was born in Austin and grew up in a tiny little town called Wimberley, which is just south of Austin. And um, yeah, I sort of, I had, my parents had gifted me a mandolin for Christmas when I was nine (laughs) because I had expressed interest in the sound of it on a couple recordings that my dad would play around the house, particularly Hot Rise's Colleen Malone. Since I sailed from old island and home But those hills lush and green Were a part of my dream When I dreamed of my calling alone That that was kind of my first memory as a kid Of like that lick on the mandolin that opens the song (laughs) Is, um, it just stood out to me Like it, it was ringy and clear in this way that I that nothing sort of affected me like that before. And, and of course, Tim O'Brien's voice, but, but you know, the mandolin. And so, yeah, I was at the time, my mom and I would, would, you know, play music uh, at, at church every Sunday. And one of the the women who also played at church hadn't brought a mandolin one week. And I remember just like being so enamored with it and it was small like me, you know, and, um, it sort of seemed to fit my vibe at the time. So she wound up letting me borrow the mandolin. And then that was eventually the mandolin that my parents bought from her, um, as a Christmas present. And yeah, so then it's kind of funny. I laugh about it now, but basically when I started playing mandolin was when we stopped going to church, (laughs) (laughs) just cause like, (laughs) I, you know, would my, I think my parents were becoming a little disillusioned with the whole thing anyways. Um, and then simultaneously to that started playing gigs on the weekends. And, um, and, and then the big, the biggest turning point, um, was we discovered this bluegrass jam that happened every Friday night in my little hometown. And it was at a catfish restaurant called Charlie's. And, um, you know, and kind of in lieu of going to the football games on Friday night, I would go to this bluegrass jam and the people were just literally the best humans you would ever want to meet. And they, um, they just made me feel so welcome. I mean, I was, I was this little kid and they did not ever treat me like a little kid. They just treated me as, as one of, one of their own past solos to me, even before I really knew how to, how to solo or improvise on a song. And I really feel like that's how I just, I was sort of thrown into the fire, but like with the nicest humans that you could possibly, and you know, at that age, at 10 years old, that was important because it wasn't, and I, in many ways, I feel like that's why I'm still playing music today is because my initial, experience with it was not competitive or um it was just about community and um ultimately like that's why I wanted to keep going back every week and um you know every week I would take another solo or sing another (laughs) song and and it really kind of it started learning that way that's great when did you did you start taking lessons or did your parents teach you I started taking lessons. Yeah. Probably around a couple years after that, I, I took 
lessons with uh, Billy Bright. Oh, who, yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. Has he been on this podcast? He has. And actually, nice. I, um, I played in Austin with him and Kim Warner and Paul Glass uh, Amazing. last October. We did a live stream out there. Amazing. Yeah. So all three of those guys you just mentioned were, you know, big mandolin influences for me. I, I would sit in with the green cards all the time oh, wow. um, playing, playing with Kim and, you know, got to play with Paul Glass on a couple occasions. Um, but Billy was my Billy also lived in Wimberley. And so um, I remember it was kind of the way that we found out about Billy was um, I went to go. My parents took me to go see. Tony Rice and Peter Rowan actually um, at Stubbs, which is a, a venue in Austin and Billy and his wife at the time, Bryn, um, they were their band. It was literally just the, the quartet. It was Tony, Peter, Billy and Bryn. And, you know, I, that was right around the time that I was getting super into the mandolin. And I remember seeing Billy and just being like, Oh man, he's killing it up there. Like I, I love his vibe chatted to him after the show and you know we found out that he lives in Wimberley and, and that's kind of how um I started taking lessons from him and yeah I, pr I probably took lessons from Billy for a few years we we played a couple of duo shows around Austin um and he was just so generous um and same thing like I think the the through line for me as a as a you know I guess pre-teen and then into my teenage years was that people, I was so lucky that my teachers treated, treated me like an adult. And I think that that is like the best way, you know, if I, if I was going to give people advice now, it's like, don't, don't talk down to kids, like have them, they can meet you at your level if you allow them to, you know? And, um, I just feel so grateful for that. Looking back to, to be, to be um, welcomed with open arms, but also challenged at the same time. And I think, you know, Billy was great at doing that. And then eventually, like when I started going to camps and festivals, um, like Rocky Grass, for instance, um, yeah, the teachers, it was just kind of across the board. That was, that was the vibe. And so I feel like it was this fun sort of cycle of like every summer, you know, you would learn something and then you'd go home and, and want to get better for the next summer <laughs> and just, <laughs> right. you know, kind of be able to sit in a jam and, and show your friends and teachers what you learned. And, um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of how it started for me. That's awesome. And you make a great point. Like it's even as adults now, like going to a bluegrass jam where there's people better than you. I mean, that's how you learn to get better. That's how I think 100%. everybody, everybody learns to get better is by seeing somebody better than you. And then being like, well, I got to step my game up and work a little harder. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. And of course you have to have the interest and the passion as well. I mean, like something I've thought a lot about, um, you know, recently that my partner and I talk about a lot is, you know, it, a lot of, for instance, people say like, I'm bad at math, like a blanket statement. I'm bad at math. No, you're just not interested in math. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> right, like, right. You, you, even, even with great teachers, you, you also still have to bring the passion and the interest to want to step up your game. And the, and the work. And, yeah, and put in the work. Exactly. So yeah, I, I feel like, um, I just feel so grateful for so many incredible, um, you know, teachers, mentors, heroes that turned into mentors that turned into friends, um, kind of all along the way. 
It's it's wild. It's it really does seem kind of unique to this genre of music, like the acoustic genre, you know, because I mean, I know so many people who play like electric guitar, played rock guitar, and that's you just hear like the worst stories about teachers. I mean, I took drum lessons, one drum lesson when I was a kid, I played drums like all my life before mandolin, but I took one drum lesson to get better. And the dude was like half hour late. And he's like, you know, half hour late. And he's like, well, it looks like the other student didn't show up. So I guess today's your lucky day. And, I'm, you know, it was like the only, it was like, well, yeah. I won't, this will be the last lesson. He's like, see you next week. I'm like, nah, well, I don't think so. <laughs> you know, it just wasn't a great I'm, experience. You're like, I'm you know? good. Yeah, yeah, this will be, I'll just, you know, I'll just continue on this terrible path of, but, you know, but then it just made me research different ways to learn stuff, you know, like just focus harder at working on records and CDs and, and learning that way. But Mm-hmm. And you also went to the Mandolin Symposium. I did. Yeah, yes. I went. Um, I I went to the very first one, uh, and then five consecutive years. Um, that is so. The, so what blows my mind about this group of I, you know, I knew that you went from previous um, uh, interviews I've done, but it just still blows my mind to this day the amount of success that. Um, that that core group of 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 people in kind of all about your age range, sort of you and Sierra and Jake and Dominic and, and Rick, um, mm-hmm. like if you were to look at a baseball camp, the amount of people that go pro from a baseball camp, camp, let alone a group <laughs> of people, is very slim. And to, to it's so cool to see the amount of success all of you have had. It's it's amazing. I it's I, <laughs> you know, I think it's so cool. And you kind of took a different path, though. A lot of them went to Berkeley, but you went to the New England school. The New England Conservatory. Yeah. 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 Now, yeah. Was, was there a reasoning behind that, or was there was, – was it Berkeley ever a choice, too, or – Yeah, Berkeley was definitely a choice. I, I, you know, sort of after my, you know, going to the Mandolin Symposium, going to Rocky Grass, going to Mount Shasta Camp, uh, going to IBMA, you know, I was sort of – doing all the rounds of the acoustic bluegrass, newgrass folk, whatever you want to call it festivals. And that's, I was making these really incredible friendships, um, you know, with many of the people you mentioned, you know, Dominic, um, Rick Robertson, um, Jake Jolliffe. Uh, yeah. Sam, Sam Grisman. It was, it was, uh, it was an incredible time. And, and it does just, just before we move on from mental symposium, like it, um, it it kind of, it, well, it makes me sad in a way that it doesn't exist anymore. Um, like I believe it existed for 10 years and, and now it doesn't exist. So it, it does, when I think about that, it feels like this sort of golden, (laughs) golden age of, um, the mandolin and and learning t- teaching the mandolin you know like like david grisman and chris feely and mike marshall um and tim o'brien it, it was just this incredible time and the fact that so many friendships like you said came out of that and are still very strong friendships is i do think that's that's rare um so yeah basically because of all those experiences i had kind of set my sights on boston as my destination, um, because a lot of those people, a lot of the names that I just mentioned, you know, we, we were talking and uh, amongst ourselves and it seemed like we were all kind of flocking to Boston, whether it be for Berkeley or NEC or just the Boston music scene in general. And so once I kind of decided that Boston was where I wanted to end up, it, I did sort of narrow it down to, to Berkeley and NEC. And ultimately, 
I decided on NEC because I, by the time I went to college, I already had a record deal. Um, I signed a record contract at 16 and a lot of the more career side of things as opposed to the music side of things were kind of starting to be underway for me. And I always felt like Berkeley had placed a little more importance on, you know, obviously they have great music classes and teachers and everything, but there was this sort of emphasis on building your career and sort of focusing on the music business side of things. And in the end, I I was just kind of like, well, I don't feel like I need to go to college for that because I've already kind of started down that road. And I, I don't, I don't need college for that reason. Like I want, I want to go to music school to like really challenge myself musically and get out of my musical comfort zone. And so ultimately that's why I chose NEC, but it was, it was really kind of the best of both worlds because they're a couple blocks away and all of my friends who were at Berkeley, we were all living on the same block. And so I was still very much able to, you know, be totally entrenched in that, whole scene and and there was a legendary apartment that um <laughs> we wound up calling it was on 65 Hemingway Street and Dominic and um Rick and Sam Grisman and and those Alex Hargraves um all lived there and um I I literally lived on the same block and so it was that was so much learning um happened there in a way because it was just like jamming all this. It's almost like when you hear about Greenwich village in the sixties or something, or it's right. like the folk scene and everybody was in the same place and just bouncing ideas off each other. That's sort of what Boston felt like when I was there. And it was, it was really kind of a magical, magical time to be there. That's awesome. So you, so you get this record deal at 16 and it's not just like a regular record deal for, for the, for the genre of music to be on sugar Hill records is especially at that point, it's kind of like the pinnacle record label that you'd want to hit, you know, to, to have your first album on that on Sugar Hill is a pretty sweet deal. thrilled I mean it, it all felt very right and it also simultaneously felt kind of surreal um when I think back on it um but yeah all the records that they were putting out were the records that I was obsessed with at the time you know Tim O'Brien records Nickel Creek records um you know I mean the list goes on and on so it was and that all was came about through Gary Pachosa. Um, he, he heard my set at the Telluride Bluegrass Festival in 2007 um, when I was 16 and, and meeting him sort of led to signing that contract and then eventually making four albums with, with him. Yeah. Four great albums with him. <laughs> <laughs> the, the other thing that's pretty amazing is the, the amount of songs on that first album. I mean, that's a, you know, a lot of time. Well, you know, partially 
might have been because of the uh the year people were still like buying cds at the time so now 10 songs is kind of like oh that's, that's enough for an album that's not going to get purchased <laughs> you know what i mean or, <laughs> or streamed you know what i mean but you know there's yeah. a, a truckload of songs in a great variety of songs and as a matter of fact i love your version of come on up to the house the tom waits team. <laughs> thank you That might have been the, the first thing that might have even, um, besides the fact that you played mandolin and I was getting into mandolin right around that time, um, I saw, so yeah, I think it was an Austin City Limits. Did you play it on Austin City Limits? I did, yeah. 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 I was like, oh, I've got to go buy this today. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so how did you come up with the tunes for that first album? Yeah, um, I mean... You know, I think like a lot of people's first albums, it's a little bit of a, a collection of everything you've worked on up until that point. I mean, um, for me, I, I started writing songs, um, you know, around 12, 13. And then a big turning point that sort of put that first album into focus actually was getting my octave mandolin, my, my Fletcher Brock um octave mandolin which i i bought at um i i can't remember it it was i want to say 2006 um at ibma at the at the trade show um in nash when it was still in nashville um and you know through like i said obviously have already referenced tim o'brien several times i was the biggest Tim O'Brien fan, like probably still am. I mean, I devoured his records and um, especially at that time when I was a teenager um, and hearing his octave mandolin on um, some of his records, particularly a way out on the mountain, which is his duo record with his sister, Molly. I just knew that I wanted to find an octave mandolin like that. And I saw pictures of it and I just thought it looked so cool. And so I kind of had in the back of my mind, like, I need to find one of these things. And it was kind of hard to find. It was hard because even Tim's was, um, I think it was like an arch top guitar that had been re sort of redone into an octave mandolin. So his has, has a much bigger body than mine. Um, and yeah, so I remember like, like it was yesterday walking into the trade show and seeing Fletcher Brock's 
stand and it was like a light was shining down (laughs) and like angels started singing and I played it. I played it for literally like 30 seconds. And I was like, this is my soulmate instrument. And, um, and so I got that, you know, right around the time that I, um, signed the record contract, started working on my first record. And it, it was really that instrument that I feel like I was able to find my sound. I mean, like really sort of go from where with the mandolin, I was doing so much learning and learning other people's material and learning covers. When I got the octave mandolin, it was like, oh, now I'm writing my music. Now I'm creating my songs and my sound. And um, so that was definitely a turning point. And I think led a lot to, you know, Song Up In Her Head, the the title track of that album is played on the octave mandolin. That was maybe the first thing I, it was just crazy how when I got that instrument, so many songs just poured out of it. It was like, I mean, it's, it's kind of magical in retrospect, but yeah, so that, that had a huge part of, of making that album come to life. And I had that in my notes here. Cause you know, it seems like the octave mandolin is making this really big um, resurgence right now. Um, you know, Joe Walsh has got his Peghead Nation course and then mm-hmm. Northfield's got those killer ones that are out there right now. But when I yeah. think back next to Tim O'Brien, um, and even compared to Tim O'Brien, I would say, I think you definitely use it way more than anyone that I can think of in, in recent times and, and made it a seamless part of your identity, I think, which is really, really cool. Yeah. I mean, I, I just really, when people ask me like, what's your, if you had to pick one instrument, you know, what is it? I mean, that would be, that's my, my instrument without a doubt. I mean, and it's funny because I think a lot of, I I, it did sort of overtake the mandolin in a lot of my live shows, especially. And I think a, a lot of people, when they see it, they, it registers as a guitar. And so I think <laughs> some people feel like I've abandoned the mandolin or, or whatever, but I'm, I'm still playing a lot of octave mandolin in my shows. Um, it just looks like a guitar. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you, um, you mentioned in, I watched a uh, video of you at the Northfield, um, mandolin oh my gosh i can't think of the name of it i just had to oh show marshall it. marshall mandolin yes camp. the marshall mandolin camp and you were yeah. um you play a song on um the octave mandolin but you mentioned um that you use some chords that you play it obviously you play it differently than a mandolin but it sounded like you maybe just even approach it kind of differently than a mandolin when you pick it up and i was wondering what maybe some of those differences are yeah i mean it's i i definitely approach it very differently um the the biggest difference probably being that I use a capo, you know, constantly with, with it. And I, I don't use a capo with the mandolin. Um, and it, in a way it sort of feels like, I think w- when I was starting to write songs as a teenager and I was just, I was playing so much mandolin and writing instrumentals. Um, and then also starting to play a lot of guitar and writing songs it was like the octave sort of bridged the gap between those two things and brought, brought in, like I could, I could take more of the, the picking patterns that I had with the mandolin that I couldn't necessarily quite do on guitar and sort of meld the two together with the octave mandolin. So in a way it sort of feels like the middle ground. Um, 
even an approach with um, just like mental approach to to how I think about it um, when I'm sitting down to, to learn a song or write a song. Um, it's I definitely think about it in a more open way, like like in a more ringy way than I do with with the mandolin. I think just because I because I am playing with a capo. I try to find positions where things can ring and I can do kind of cross-picking patterns. Build me up from bones Wrap me up in skin Whereas I think when I'm playing mandolin, it's it's more closed positions and um, not necessarily always op- this open, ringy sound, um, if that makes sense. Absolutely. But, yeah, so it, it does sort of feel like my bridge between the mandolin and the guitar. Yeah. So going back to your influences, obviously Tim O'Brien's a big influence and, and, and all the mandolin players are influences. I mean, your mandolin playing is just and it, absolutely incredible. I mean, even on the first song and I, I or the first album, and I'm going to murder. What? How do you pronounce the instrumental tune? The main Manzanita. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. What? Um. Is there a story behind that song? that I wrote and um, you know I, I really do need to give a shout out to Mike Marshall because he um, he was just so generous with his just being inc- an incredible mentor to me early on I mean I learned so much from Mike at, at those early mandolin symposiums um, kind of all along the way he was just really um, he played um on on that track um he he kind of helped that one come alive manzanita and yeah so anyways i just i i would hate to get to the end of this podcast and not give mike a, a proper shout out because he's i i sometimes think he doesn't get enough credit in the scene um i think he's one of the best musicians in the world and he was so important to me um early on so yeah, Mike and Tim, I would say, um, Ronnie McCurry as well, uh, kind of my big influences on the mandolin, um, obviously Chris Thiele, uh, you know, and Chris was, we could do a whole podcast about, you know, my, my friendship and, and with Chris and he, him being such an incredible mentor to me from such an early age, um, and yeah, so I would say, say those guys just really influenced my, my playing and, um, yeah, Manzanita was, was one of the, well, I don't, it wasn't the first instrumental I wrote, but it was definitely an early one. And it's incredible. 
you know, and, and thank you. You're welcome. But what's also incredible, not only the fact that you obviously worked really, really hard on your mandolin chops. And I know this is a mandolin podcast, but I'd be I'd feel ridiculous to not talk to you a little bit about some of your songwriting influences, because there's um, that doesn't always happen with man in the mandolin world. You know what I mean? A lot of mm-hmm. times, sometimes the mandolin tunes are the vehicles for the solos, <laughs> you know, on, on exactly. Some, and exactly. That, and that's not the case on your album. And not only do you write great songs, but you also have great instrumental hooks that um, that actually offset the melody again. A lot of times in the mandolin world, um, the melody of the tune is the vocal, like the the verse melody or the chorus mel- melody, and and your tunes, um, you have these killer hooks in there that aren't necessarily the same as the verse or the chorus, which I love. And so, what were you Thanks. listening to besides all these killer mandolin players um, for songwriting ideas? I mean, I was just listening to to so many different things. I, I think, you know, before, really, in a way, I feel like a singer first and foremost and uh, instrumentalist second to that. But the things that I was so into as a teen when I was starting to write my own songs were people who were incorporating all, not just focusing on having a great vocal performance, not just focusing on having a great song, not just having an instrumental, but like kind of putting all three of those things together. You know, somebody who comes to mind as a great example of that is Daryl Scott. Um, Oh my gosh. You know, Daryl is somebody who just does it all really well, but it, it comes together in this way that just sounds like Daryl and you hear something you're like, that's a Daryl Scott song, you know? Um, and you know, also Nickel Creek was huge in in terms of that, where it was like, I wasn't missing any, it was like great catchy songs, but then the instrumental aspects of, of it too was so rich and, and full and, and a lot to sort of dig your teeth into. Um, Gillian Welch, uh, massive influence, obviously. Um, and, and she was a big one when I started playing more banjo as well in my teens, um, kind of how she incorporated the Clawhammer banjo into her songwriting. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I think I just, I wanted to not, even though I was so obsessed with the mandolin as an early teen, and that was where a lot of my energy and obsession was going towards, I knew that I knew that it sort of wasn't the be all and end all for me and that I what I really cared about was singing and writing songs. And so finding a way to incorporate my like instrumental skills into the song, but like not for the sake of doing it. (laughs) Is that sort (laughs) of like sort of like what you said earlier, where you're like a lot of times, you know, the song is just a vehicle for a place to play the solo. You know, I didn't. I think, you know, and it's like the older I get, the less and less I want that to be the case. I I want to focus on the song and do what serves the song the best. Um, So, yeah, that's sort of a long winded way of answering your your question. That's a great answer. And your your cover choices, I mean, from Prince to Tom Waits to Bob Dylan, Billie Eilish, you (laughs) two, you know, I mean, again, that's a great way to not be pigeonholed. I think is, and that's why I, st- I think you, you you stand out as so unique 
in in the acoustic music world is it doesn't seem like you're just you didn't limit yourself to one genre you kind of make them all your own thanks i mean honestly at the end of the day it's just a reflection of what i actually listen to <laughs> i'm even when i was super obsessed with you know just getting into to hot rise and punch brothers and nickel creek and gillian welch and abigail washburn and that whole sort of acoustic site crooked still um I was also like wildly obsessed with the Decemberists and Wilco and Death Cab for Cutie and, um, you know, and then also Paul Simon and Joni Mitchell and Bob Dylan. So I feel like I've, I'm always listening. My cover choices are just a reflection of songs that I love at the end of the day. And it's like, I, I don't actually feel like I can do a song justice if I don't, truly love it and if i don't listen to it like a hundred times to, <laughs> to where i'm able to internalize it and i love it on such a deep level that i'm able to then genuinely make it my own um so yeah i love like doing my cover series last fall was such such an important thing for me to during that was kind of like i don't know this this whole last year has been so tough for for so many people and just shifting focus and and learning a new song each week brought me so much so much joy. Yeah, I bet. Well, I think brought a lot of people joy, you know, which is the other cool part of of what you do. For sure, for sure. Uh, so when you went to the um to NEC, what did you study there? So I was a part I I did their program called Contemporary Improvisation, which um now is kind of turning into a bigger thing at the time when I was there, um, I, I want to say there were only like 30 people in the whole program. It's, it was definitely the, the smallest factor of NEC. Um, NEC is for, for people who don't know is mostly a classical music conservatory. So the majority of people who go there are, are stunning classical musicians. Um, and then they have a jazz program as well. And then CI contemporary improvisation is the smallest component of the school, but it was um, it contemporary improvisation. I feel like it's just a fancy term for. Um, I guess maybe it started with Gunther Schuler and kind of almost this idea of melding classical and jazz traditions into something new, and then from there it sort of expanded to include a lot of different styles. And I feel like by the time I got there, it was really just a conservatory term for exploring your own music and and writing your own music that's not necessarily that doesn't fit perfectly into the classical or jazz genres but is like something in between and so yeah i i focused a lot on um vocal i i, I studied with a, with a voice teacher for the first time in my life i i had never i had done some austin musical theater when i lived in central texas but I never had like a dedicated voice teaching. Singing was just something I always did from the time basically I came into the world. So it was it was really amazing to think about singing in a different way for the first time. And I I've I studied with a woman named Dominique Ede, who's incredible. Um, and then Hank Isnetsky was my other main teacher, and he's just um, you know such a 
an avid music lover and voracious listener of so many things, I feel like he opened my ears up um, in a way that was kind of invaluable. That's awesome. So when getting, getting to a little bit more back into the mandolin here. Mm-hmm. So if you had a highlight from one of the symposiums, what do you think that would be? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> there's so many. That's so hard to choose. Um, I guess, I guess it would be, I would have to go back to the first one, the first mandolin symposium, which was, I believe in 2004, I was 13. Um, and so, you know, just that in and of itself, I was 13. It was, it, it was kind of one of the first, I had been to Rocky Grass already. So I had traveled for my music, but it was just so exciting to go out to California and, um, you know, be out there. So that in and of itself was, was amazing, but that because it was the first one, there was just so much excitement and newness and, um, Chris Feely, I I believe that was the only one that he was there for the entire time. I think if I remember correctly, he kind of started it with dog and Mike Marshall and then as the years went on and nickel Creek was just exploding, he, he would just come in for a day or two, but he couldn't be there the whole time. So that week, and, and to put this in context, I mean, that was at the height of my obsession with Chris and nickel Creek. And, you know, they were (laughs) all of us, like all the kids, Dominic and, and Jake Jolliffe, everybody who was there was just like, Nickel Creek, Nickel Creek. Oh my God, there's never been a better band in the world. Like, we, were, <laughs> we were so obsessed. And so to be able to be there with Chris and study with him this entire week was so mind-blowingly special. And, you know, the memory that that comes to mind is um, we wound up writing uh, a, a piece of music with with him and sort of premiered it at the concert at the end of the week. Um and we, it was like Chris, me, Dominic, um, Jake Jolliffe, Bryce Milano, Sam Grisman, and then one other girl whose name, I, I think her name was Rachel. I can't remember her last name. Um, but we just got to, so every day after classes were over, Chris would hang out with us until two in the morning and, (laughs) and we would just like gallivant all over the Santa Cruz, UC Santa Cruz campus and hang out and work on music and, and write this original piece of music to premiere that weekend. And, you know, like that was unbelievable, especially now as an adult, you know, so if I was 13, he's 10 years older than me. So he would have been 23 he didn't have to do that. You know, he, he was a 23 year old. Like he could have gone out with, you know, I don't know. (laughs) And he was, he was choosing to hang with, with us little teenagers. Um, and that, I think it changed all of our lives. Like it was just that he, he put that much energy into working with us and inspiring us, um, and just hanging out with us. Um, I think that's the memory that, that stands out the most, um, because it was this combination of being so challenging and kind of intense, but also so fun. 
Um, so yeah, I think that that performance, it might be somewhere on YouTube. We wound up calling ourselves the mostly rights. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so I hope it's still on YouTube. Um, but I'm not sure. Anyways, that was definitely look. That was really, really special. Thinking back to 13 year old you, can you even imagine as 13 year old you having the friendship you have with Chris now and being in a band with Sarah Watkins? (laughs) I mean, it, it definitely is totally, it just feels very full circle. Um, I think, yeah, if you would have told that version of of me, um, that, you know, I would be really good friends with Chris now and, um, in a band with Sarah Watkins, I would have, I don't, I would have screamed or something. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, that, that's like the level of obsession. Um, but it just says so much about, you know, not only them as musicians, but more as humans. And, um, you know, they, they've just, and especially, I I actually didn't really get to know Sarah very well until we kind of were in the band together. Um, cause you know, this is a mandolin podcast. So, so much of my focus in those teenage years was on the mandolin. And so when I, even when I would sit in with Nickel Creek, when they would come through Austin, it was really like Chris was, was my sort of mentor figure. And he really came to be very consistent in that role. Um, and yeah, I mean, it just, it just says a lot about him as a human that he, he was able to be so giving of his knowledge and his time. Um, and then, you know, eventually once I became an adult and we were finding ourselves in professional situations together, you know, we just became friends and, and then, you know, obviously eventually getting to work on live from here with him um, was really the first time that I got to work with Chris in, in a professional manner. Um, You know, before that so much of our playing together and singing together was just done in impromptu situations where Punch Brothers would be playing or Nickel Creek would be playing. um, And he would invite me to sit in. Um, And so it was really special to have the live from here um, situation to actually get to really work on music together. And uh, yeah, I feel like that sort of like solidified our, our friendship. Um, Yeah. And then Sarah Watkins, I cannot say enough good things about Sarah. She's just the best of the best. And um, yeah, it just, it feels really special to, to have gone from like these people being my heroes to, now I get to just make music with them and they're my friends. Um, <laughs> That's great. But it, but it, it mostly says, says good things about them because they're not like too big in their heads to like not give a little kid the time of day, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, I think it says a lot about you though, too, about somebody who's worked really, really hard and kept their head about themselves. Cause again, you know, they wouldn't work with anybody who, um, no matter how good they were, if they weren't, you know, a good person as well and super, uh, giving to the music community, you know, you probably wouldn't be in a band with <laughs> Sarah Watkins, sure. you know? So I think that's sure. a lot about I you. Mean, thank you. I, yeah, I think, absolutely. you know, my, my, my parents were always placed a lot of importance on, you know, uh, I, I'm thankful they were not stage parents. They, they wanted me to, to, uh, have as as much of a normal life while all of that was going on so i think they they helped keep me grounded in what would have otherwise been like 
a, a wild ride as, as a teenager. <laughs> I, can, <laughs> I mean, yeah. it still was, but sure, you know. I did. Um, so I just had uh, John Moore, Chris Thiele's first mandolin teacher, on. Um, that Amazing. came out this week. So it'd be interesting to see since you got to kind of have Chris as a mentor, maybe um, some playing tips or some things that in your playing that you find yourself that you've really focused on that he might have helped you out with. Mm, that's that's good. I it's actually I I got to take some. Speaking of John Moore, um, he was teaching at one of the very first Rocky Grass academies that I went to oh, wow. um, when I was 11 or 12. And I remember John just being such an amazing teacher. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I always thought that was kind of cool. Like, especially at that time when I was so into Nickel Creek, I, I thought it was really cool to get to like take a lesson from the guy who taught Chris Thiele. Um, and he was just the sweetest person too. Oh my God, um, the nicest guy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And I know I, Sarah, um, you know, was recently made such a nice post about Dennis Kaplan, Kaplinger, who just passed away. Um, so yeah, it's, I know that those, those guys are, have been, and Byron Berline were so important to Sarah and Chris and Sean. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, Chris, Chris has always tried to encourage me. It, it's almost related to what I was saying um, earlier about being a complete musician. Um, and in a way, I, f I feel like more than any mandolin specific examples, he's, he's always tried to encourage me to just like what I was saying earlier, like focus on every part of the every part of the song being great and not not just focusing on one aspect of it and so initially that was him you know teaching me especially at the the early mandolin symposiums you know actual mandolin technique and I remember he was <laughs> I feel like every time especially in those early years he was always obsessed with like a different pick holes or a different <laughs> a different bevel on the pick or he would come with a, a different pick each year and then we would all like go scramble to buy whatever that pick was um you know so initially it kind of started out as stuff like that I, I remember one very specific thing that I remember him saying in maybe that first mandolin symposium I was playing something and it was I was going up on the neck so like uh, let me see if I can explain this over podcasts without <laughs> sure. showing like a, like a, if I was playing a scale going up, like da, 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 with, with, with my pinky in particular, when I would be going down, I would sometimes miss going from my pinky to my ring finger. And I remember him saying like, don't just focus on going up, like make sure you're staying strong coming back down too. And um, I don't know, that just stuck with me. And I think about it all the time. Um, when I'm when I'm practicing songs or playing tunes. Um, so that's like a super specific example for you. But yeah, um, I love it. Um, yeah, no, I, I think more if I were to try to make it concise, he is interested in and he himself is interested in trying to be a complete musician. Um, and I think that he's always encouraging me to, to try to do the same. When you're sitting down, you pull a beautiful tone out of the mandolin. Um, is there um, kind of something you like warm up wise that you kind of focus on when you're getting ready to play? Because 
it, it's just your uh, your sound is so full and uh, very uh, you're I, you have a very unique mandolin sound. Like I think you can kind of pick it out if something's playing on the radio or something or comes across in shuffle. I'm like oh, you know, before even maybe hearing your voice or something, I can definitely recognize your playing. And so, oh, geez, that's like the best compliment. You oh, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. So you you know when you sit down first thing, what is there something that you kind of work on or used to work on maybe, you know, with songwriting, sometimes you probably don't just pick it up and start, you know, woodshedding. Yeah. You might work yeah, on tunes. But. Yeah. There's not really a, a consistent thing that I go to. I, I, I wish that I had a, a better answer for that. Um, I think for me, it, it's also kind of complicated because I'm always switching instruments. So <laughs> right. it kind of depends on which one I'm picking up. Um, but you know, I think in general, especially if we're focusing on mandolin or octave mandolin, I usually, if I'm, if I'm playing mandolin, I'll kind of gravitate if I'm just sitting down toward a scale kind of, kind of more working within a scale mind frame and just getting, getting comfortable on, on the fingerboard and kind of just settling in. Um, so more individual notes playing playing a little tune i think with the octave mandolin i'm thinking more quarterly um and kind of like what i was saying earlier where i'm almost there's a lot of cross-picking chords that i sort of um use on on the octave mandolin and so i feel like oftentimes especially lately i'll i'm i'm really into capo three on the octave mandolin so like playing in b flat but open in a g position um, it's just like kind of the sweet spot on the octave, I think. Um, and so that's usually, I'll kind of just slap on the capo on, um, capo three and just kind of play around with some, and especially because I have the, um, the strings, I have the higher octave on the D string. Yeah. I was going to um, ask, it looked like you had like an unwound string yeah and i didn't know if it was like a string broke and that was the only one <laughs> no <laughs> no i i got i mean i i guess i started doing that because it's what tim o'brien did um but i so and i think that's also why i pr prefer to call it octave mandolin as opposed to bazooki because i think in my mind the bazooki you could call it a bazooki but i associate bazooki with different tunings you know more in in celtic and Irish and Scottish styles. And I always have mine tuned as an octave lower than a mandolin. So that's sort of like in my, I don't know if that's technically correct, but that's, that's why I call it the octave mandolin. Um, but yeah, I have my, um, the G and the D's um, strung in octaves. And so like on a song, for instance, like build me up from bones um, that the, the cross picking pattern that starts that off I couldn't really do that if I had them strung in unison. Like it, it, it relies on a downstroke on the bottom string and then an, and then another downstroke on the A and then an upstroke on the D. Um, and it's all about that upstroke that makes it sound like it's an octave higher. So, you know, there's some cool stuff like that. And I feel like when I sit down with the octave, I'm generally kind of falling into something like that. So some sort of cross picking pattern that's taking advantage of those, those octaves, those different octaves on the, on the stringing. Cool. Um, I'll post a link yeah. by the way to that um, Northfield video. Cause that's a really good example of what you're talking about right now. Oh, cool. 
That's cool, a cool. really cool thing. So um, if you had to pick, this is different because you, you, you were a big songwriting fan too. So one of the questions I always like to ask is if you picked up your mandolin now, do you have a favorite fiddle tune to play? So I'll ask that, Ooh. but then I'll also add if you were to pick up a, any other instrument and just sing and, sing and play a song, what song would that be? This is a tough one. <laughs> yeah. Um, I do feel like a song, it's very, it's a very simple tune, but a tune that I wind up gravitating towards on the mandolin is um, Pear Tree. is kind of an Irishy tune I'm bringing up Tim O'Brien again it's on um it's on I think it's on his record Two Journeys uh if I'm not mistaken but and I think it's like in a medley of tunes but I just love I you know almost going back to I, my ears are so drawn to ringy things these days and I think that's why I play more octave mandolin with the capo but Pear Tree is a, is a tune on the mandolin that I feel like it has just this naturally ringy thing going on. And it's a very simple tune, but I just, I just love it. Yeah. Um, so that might be the, the one, that's the one that comes to mind first right now. But mm -hmm. um, for song, oh my gosh, <laughs> <laughs> that's so tough. Um, I mean, I've, I've actually been just playing so much guitar recently. Um, the, and I, I, I've been singing this song by Bruce Coburn a lot, just around the house, um, called Pacing the Cage. Sunset is an angel weeping Holding out a bloody sword No matter how I squint I cannot Make out what it's pointing toward Sometimes you feel like you've lived too long Days drip slowly on the page You catch yourself Facing Which, it has this, once again, like, kind of finger-picking cross picking type uh, thing going on um, that was a little challenging for me to figure out initially. But yeah, I, I think sometimes I'm sort of drawn to like more difficult cross picking rhythms as like a warm up um, to just get things going. But yeah, that's, that's, that song comes to mind. Um, it also just feels kind of appropriate for the times. Yeah. <laughs> Lyrically it's he's, that there's someone he's not a mandolin player but i mean that's somebody who i just 
love um, and I think does not get talked about nearly enough. Yeah, I'm familiar with the name and probably a, a little bit of stuff, but hardly at all. But you can you can bet I'll be listening to some today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that song is so good. Pacing the Cage. What's um when you're picking up a mandolin, what is your obviously we talked about the octave mandolin. Do you have a, a main? I, I know you had a nugget um, on your mandolin Mondays video is that kind of your main playing instrument or do you have another one my main one for years has been a callings um mf5 that i got um i want to say in 2003 i i was playing (laughs) so my very first mandolin that i got when i was nine was a lotus a style it was this sweet little blonde um sort of big bodied in retrospect um and that is now covered with signatures from everybody from ralph stanley to doc watson oh wow cool Um, it's allison krauss i mean it 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 sort of i i started i think ralph stanley was maybe the first person i had sign it and then it just like turned into a thing where um but that one is i i don't obviously that's sort of in safekeeping (laughs) Um, (laughs) yeah and and then i had a weber a little blonde weber for a while for maybe a year or two after that as like a step up. And that was my, that was going my first going from an A style to F style. Um, and then because I grew up in Wimberley, uh, which is literally a town over from where the Collings factory is in Dripping Springs. Um, I got to know Steve McCreary and Bill Collings really well from a, a pretty young age. And Steve, especially just, swooped me up and just was with open arms from the very beginning. And and he's like practically an angel in my life. Um, he, anybody who knows Steve, they'll tell you, he's like probably one of the best humans in the world. Um, and yeah, so Steve, um, when I was playing at the old settlers music festival, which is outside of Austin and kind of where I started playing my own sets, he, uh, he wound up bringing this, this callings, um, over to, over to our house and I just fell in love with it. And that, that was my main and kind of is still my main mandolin. Um, so that's, that's been like my go-to. I, I just love callings and, um, but yeah, I, I guess a few years ago I wound up acquiring this nugget a style, um, which is one serial number away from Tim's, you know, famous, um nugget a um and uh yeah it was it was actually kind of a a funny story how i got it because i had been looking for another mandolin and and something that was different not to really replace my callings but just to have a different vibe and feel um and um dominic actually was on tour in colorado and i had told him that i was sort of keeping my eye out for something and he um, he played this nugget and he, he called me and he was like, if I were you, I would buy this. <laughs> like, <laughs> so I basically bought it sight unseen. Um, and they shipped it to me and, uh, I love it. It's, it's way woodier and kind of, um, tighter and boxier sounding, if that makes sense than my callings. Um, but it's just got this gorgeous woody tone and obviously it being, one serial number away from Tim's um, has sort of special meaning to me. And um, yeah, so that's been fun. I haven't really, I've, I've done a few things with it, taken it out on a few gigs, but um, in general, I still tour with my, with my callings. 
Do you plug in when you when you play? When I saw you at Telluride, you did like the uh, the uh, might have been even a one mic situation or it. I'm trying oh, to remember back, now. If, if that was in 2016, maybe I I definitely plug in. Um, at this point, I I for a while I was using um a K and well I still have a K and K pickup. Um, but then I was running it through a tone bone, a radial tone bone um, preamp, and now. I'm just running the K and K through a um a Neve uh DI. Oh, <laughs> so wow, cool. and that's it's it's way simpler. I'm just I've never been like a big gear head. Um so I feel like even when I had the tone bones, I wouldn't even know what to do with all the knobs. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. I I'm sort of like I need to keep it simple on my end and I feel like if I'm running them the K and K through the Neve, um then you know and I'm traveling with my own sound man, so that that also plays a part of it but it's still um yeah i like to sort of simplify things on on my end on the stage so i've got two more questions for you here yeah and the uh, first one i ask every guest if you had 10 minutes a day to work on something to get better at it what would you recommend working on Ooh, i let me think about this I mean, I'm just in this phase of, you know, when I was first getting started, I really, I think um, it's just so helpful to like pick an instrumental that you love and learn it. I mean, just learn it by ear. I think I'm just, I'm a huge proponent of ear training. And I think that that was, you know, that, that really, when I went to NEC, that got pushed so much. But that also was how I how I learned initially. And I would just every day, you know, I would pick a different song. And it, I mean, at this point, I had the amazing slow downer and, you know, I would just pick something with a CD and slow it down and learn it. Um, I don't think you even need the slow downer to really exercise in, in a way. It's like a, a harder exercise to not slow it down. Um that that would be my, my my suggestion is just like I think that you become a deeper musician when you're training your ear. Um, and even if that's if, if that's learning an instrumental by ear or if that's picking a song that you love and playing along with it and sort of taking a solo and this, like especially in this time when maybe it's hard to get together with other musicians um, in person to play, you know, picking a YouTube video and act like you're jamming, you know, along with it and, and play a solo. I think, yeah, that, that would be my more than like sit down and read this piece of music. I would say find a way to sit down for 10 minutes, play and make sure that it's something you love and are interested in kind of like what we were talking about before, you know, you need to have the interest in order to, put in the focus and put in the work and um ultimately get better so find something you love find something you were like man i would just love if i could play this sit down for 10 minutes and and work your ear <laughs> yeah that's there's nothing more powerful like it and ear training can be as simple as like um like sitting alone in the moonlight like that one riff in there that's all right do 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 like just knowing when you hear that like i know exactly how that's played that's like the simple yep. version of ear training like it's just like picking up it just slowly but surely you hear this lick and you and you know without even picking up an instrument exactly how it was played 
I think that's mm-hmm. like so rewarding, man, you know, or just listening to a song and being like, oh, oh, I know what that is. A hundred percent. And also what you just did, you know, singing, singing it first and then and then transferring it over to the instrument um, can be wow. I think there's so much learning that you can do without even picking up the instrument, you know, just just learning how to connect your ear to the song, to the instrument is like that you could just do that for for all of your practice and um and just grow so much from just that and then the final question is do you have a favorite beer (laughs) i was afraid this was going to be the question (laughs) you know it's like oh my god it's so hard to just narrow it down to one um i don't know that i have a favorite beer i mean Mm -hmm. Well, or, guess, or do you have some favorite beers? Do you have like which? Yeah, beer? yeah I, I have some favorite beers. Yeah, um, you know, I guess if I had to narrow it down to one, it would probably be Sip of Sunshine. Um, I think it's Larson's um, up in Vermont. I feel like it's sort of the obviously the heady topper is so trendy and like popular and hard to come by. And I definitely have had some heady topper, and it's incredible. Um, it's not what I would want to drink all the time though. Like, I feel like it's, it's fun to drink once in a while when it's, it's special, you know, it's like a special occasion sort of beer. Um, in general, I've moved away from like the super high alcohol IPAs, um, (laughs) but some of sunshine, I think feels related to heady topper, but I don't know. It just feels a little more well-rounded to me. Um, but that also still feels like a special occasion beer. Um, I feel like I've right now I'm just, I am, well, I'm drinking less beer in general because I'm home. I think my favorite, my favorite time to drink beer is like literally when you walk off stage, like that first, or just after working, um, that first sip of cold IPA post set. Yeah. There's, there's nothing better than that. Um, so, but yeah, I guess like right now I'm into session IPAs. Like I, I'm sort I like the hoppy thing. I'm into it, but I don't need it to like knock me over the head with hops. Um, <laughs> right. It's sort of, is sort of where I'm at. Um, I was going to say, I, I haven't had it in a long time, like probably a couple years since being on tour. But there was a, um, what was that brewery called? Two Roads, I think. Two Roads. I'm going to look it up. I think it was in Connecticut. And I remember thinking that their IPA was really good. I'm looking it up. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Two Roads Brewing. Cool. Have you been to uh, Jackalope or Smith & Lentz yet since you've been in Nashville? Uh, I have been to Smith and Lentz. Um, I have not been to Jackalope, but oh, I also have also been to to Yazoo. Um, I actually love the Yazoo Hot Perfect IPA. I think is really good. Yeah, Yazoo makes great beers too. Nashville's got some great breweries. Totally, totally. Yeah, Smith and Lentz is great. Mm-hmm. Yep, Smith and Lentz is great. And check out Jackalope. You'll uh, you'll I think you'll like it. They got some great beers. I will. I've I've heard a lot about it, but have not had a chance to go. They um they used to have one. Oh, I think it's still there. It's right right around the corner from um Carter's. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally. Okay. Might have, that one might be closed during the um, pandemic, and maybe just they have another one down the road that's open. But gotcha. Yeah, gotcha. it's good stuff. Always great to play some mandolins and then go drink a jackalope. <laughs> 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 well, Sarah, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, congratulations on all the success, and um, thank you. And good luck out there on the road. I really appreciate you doing this. Yeah, I've, I've been, I, you know, I've heard about your podcast for a long time. I've been looking forward to doing this for a while. So thank you for having me. That's awesome. Thanks. All right. Thank you so much to Sarah for doing the uh, podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Follow me on Instagram at Mandolins and Beer, the Facebook as well. Send it from a mailing list at mandolinsandbeer.com. Cheers, everybody.